to Fire Headlines, where we cover the hottest topics in fire service news. I'm your host, Samantha Didion, and today I am joined by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. This week we are discussing cash bonuses to address staffing shortages. An article recently shared in the Daily Dispatch discusses Baltimore City approving a $7,500 retention and recruitment bonus program to address a shortage in EMS personnel. Jeff, I know that you have dealt with cash incentives during your time in Las Vegas, so I want to give you the floor to explain your experience and give some thoughts on this topic. Well, it's great to see you, Samantha. B.O.B. always a pleasure. I really did. I was I was right in the middle of this exact topic. And and I think what's first important for the listeners is to unpack a couple of things. I'm in uh, Las Vegas. This is a couple of years ago, very similar problem, which is still ongoing today, shortage, shortage, shortage. And from the budgetary process, I'm going to point a couple of things out. At least in my experience in Nevada, I found it to be the same when I have discussions with other administrators with experience across the country, very similar, that Each municipality has what's called FTEs, full-time equivalents, full-time employees is how most of us translate that particular acronym. And for example, you might have in a department, let's just pretend that you have 50 paramedics and 50 firefighters. Now, that's the city of Las Vegas, whereas North Las Vegas at one time only had firefighters. They only had a class job classification for firefighters, and then they would give them an incentive pay. So this gets a little bit foggy here, but what I'm going to try to explain to all the listeners in a more simplistic fashion is that every year a fire department has only so many of a certain amount of employee that they can hire. Because it's all governed by legislative action and NRS. And you can't just have, for the sake of this discussion, oh, you know what? I just want to hire 200 firefighter paramedics. So that being the case, we all have these limitations to how many firefighters or firefighter paramedics that we can actually employ at a fire department. That's where I was at in in Las Vegas. And so as I'm gathering information and going on my station tour, someone says, hey, chief, have you ever thought about bonusing? And I'm like, you know what? We never tried it before, but let's give it a whirl. But understand in this particular case, as I was mentioning before, the description that I was looking to fulfill was a lateral firefighter, which has a complete job description that was separate. And I only had so many of these positions in the firefighter paramedic realm that I could fill. Let's let's call it seven, seven or eight. So I put a bonus out. Actually, I think it was around $5,000. And what I experienced was putting myself into a position where literally I couldn't tell if it was successful or unsuccessful. And that's while I 
I appreciate Chief Wallace's perspective and he's trying to change things and he's trying to incentivize people to come. I I feel like it, it, it uncovers and exposes one of the great challenges in the fire service is that we don't, we don't have the central sort of clearinghouse where we can evaluate and test and look at the success of doing bonuses and, and things like that because it's been tried in other areas and sometimes unsuccessful. And, and back to my particular example, so we put in a $5,000 bonus and the reality is I only had seven positions that I could fill. And in the past, we had gotten the amount of people to fill those positions. And so I merely achieved what had been done in the past, right? So I can't tell if it was more successful or not. Are these employees going to be more successful over time? Did I get a higher value of an employee, so to speak, a, a more efficient, a, 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 more, a, a more picket? from a from a personnel standpoint you just it's it's impossible to measure but what i did expose in this particular case and i know this is labeled in the article a retention and a recruitment bonus so i don't know did i didn't see and maybe bob you did and samantha you did i didn't see that all the department got this particular bonus but in my case it was a recruitment bonus and what i found out was not only could i not measure the success of the recruitment effort but I had upset the employees that were there. Hey, chief, what about a $7,500 or a $5,000 bonus for me? I'm, I've been working my butt off for the city of Las Vegas and, and for you and for, and I'll tell you, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, logical me could articulate, well, let, let's look at the good of the order we may be able to provide more value and look at it from a different perspective. But I quickly was able to see through that lens and I said, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I felt like there was complete value in that statement. Although that wasn't my intent, I feel like there was a potential to disenfranchise people that were working harder. And I made the commitment then and there I'm not going to do this again based on two reasons. One, I really couldn't measure the success of the program. And I'm not saying that you couldn't measure it. I just hadn't thought through it enough to, to have a value where I could, I could say, oh yeah, this is a better program. That was point number one. And point number two, I think that it is important to understand and respond to some of the responses from the employees, not all the time, because I think it's very hard to make progress and make good decisions if you do it all the time. In this case, it, it made it made complete sense. And then point number three, point number three, which I didn't touch on uh, in throughout the, the last bit of my communications, we're talking through this is that, you know, there's been plenty of research out there that money really isn't the sole motivator to get people to do do certain things. And um, I just think kind of combined, it was a uh, for me, I will say, I can't say it was a failed experiment, but it certainly wasn't one that I believed produced optimal results. So um, on the one hand, I, I completely am excited about Baltimore. Let's try to fix this. Let's, you know, let's be bold and, and try to offer more money to entice people. And then on the, on the other end, I'm like, ah, 
you know, what, what, what does success look like from my own experiences? What will the rest of the employees think? Will you reduce productivity there? And ultimately, are you putting yourself in a better position that you were before the incentive now after it? And so, you know, I, I definitely have mixed feelings when it comes to, uh, or at least in my case, how successful this is going to be for the fire department. Those are some great points, Jeff, and a really useful point of view for other leaders possibly looking at incentives to fix staffing shortages. Bob, what about you? Do you agree with these points? Let's hear some of your thoughts. Two things stood out to me on this particular article. I want to acknowledge that it may just, in fact, be how the journalist wrote the article, but two things stood out. One, they hope the $7,500 retention and recruitment bonus will help fix the problem, will help fix the problem. No, it won't. I'll get to that in a second. And the second piece, uh, which is aligned with with whatever the problem is, but I'm gleaning out a little lower from finance, someone out of the finance office from the city says, it puts us in the fight. We're on the lower end of our comparable organizations. And this is going to bring us up more to the middle of where we can be competitive. So where we're going here, Samantha, is why? Why are we, what problem are we trying to solve with an incentive? And an incentive broadly is, uh, we'll call it an offering, a particularly a financial offering from an economic incentive perspective to induce a, be, a certain behavior. In this case, it's let's assume it's to, to recruit people into the organization to fill vacancies because it wasn't clear in the article, Jeff, to your point. It was this $7,500 offered to all the other employees who are underpaid as part of the market. Anyhow, it looked like it was a one time offering. So that's let's pay attention to that one time. One time offerings of money are not are not going to fix a structural problem. This is a supply and demand uh, labor economics argument, which we've talked about on this show before. You have 80 positions, you're short so many, and you're trying to attract people. Here's why I'm so so assertive to my to my point that is this isn't going to work. You offer $7,500 to bring yourself to the middle of the comparables. Like you, you definitely have a, a funding challenge for these positions. The next organization is going to offer an $8,000 incentive and steal them right back. This is about too small, too low of a supply of paramedics or EMS providers in that system, in that network. And just offering more money is only going to raise the the game of back and forth to other agencies who are just going to do the same. And it assumes a motivation. It assumes that motivation purely driven by money. One-time money is nice. Is that the type of organization you want to have stickers on your vehicle or what you know, whatever about? Is that the type of pride you you are looking at? I mean, when it, this is an assumption that money is going to motivate people directly in the direction you want. But what else might motivate? And what else can you offer in the structure of your organization? I don't want to out your age, Samantha, but it's probably obvious to our audience. You're younger than we are. You know, I, I'll, I'll put the onus to you. Speak for your entire generation. What are things that are valuable when you think about where it is you want to work and enter your profession? What certainly there's a, an amount of money that you have to have to serve up. Just take that off the table. There's a bear. Like I can't live my desired lifestyle without this amount of money. So so that money is a piece. I'm not dismissing money isn't a piece. But what else is the value? Great question, Bob. First, let me give a little context to our listeners. I am in my mid-20s, so right in that millennial Gen Z area. But I want to say that I agree with you. I do not believe that money is the sole motivator or the sole way to get quality employees. 
And I say that because I am finding that for my age group, and maybe it goes beyond just my age group, but the algorithm on social media shows content on my feed constantly about ways to create passive income online. I'll use dropshipping as an example. Dropshipping is a really popular way. It might take a few weeks or even months to teach yourself how to do it, but it is very possible. And from what I've heard, you get out of it what you put in it, okay? So it's all on your own time, at your own pace, and that is appealing to people. And yeah, there's potential to make a lot of money in that, but what I'm getting at is you asked what my generation values, and I believe it is work-life balance. That means hybrid or remote. That means flexibility with your schedule. And, you know, I would even argue that this applies to generations before mine in today's world. The pandemic really fueled this new norm of remote work across the board, I think. But I do understand that hybrid or remote work is not realistic for all jobs, obviously. You know, we're talking about the fire service here. And so in that case, if I were to choose a in the field type of career, such as like a firefighter, for example, or EMS personnel, I think that I would value the work environment. Do I like my coworkers? Is my job helping pay for my education so I can be qualified for a promotion? Am I happy in my work environment? So off the top of my head, I would say that my generation values work-life balance and quality work environments. Exactly. Work environment, work-life balance. And whether you want you know, a career in the fire service or we are trying to attract you to have a career in the fire service, there's a societal desire for something different than what is currently being offered. And that's a structural change. So how are you as an organization looking at this value to the workforce and offering some type of work-life balance? Because if it's an EMS provider, not a firefighter, but someone who's EMS and wants to be in the hustle and bustle of healthcare and, and wellness, right? And public health and these kinds of things, there are, there are alternatives to running an ambulance. And the organization that creates the right culture who can have the work-life balance in a meaningful way, I would argue, is going to attract more candidates to their profession than one that throws in a bonus to try to get you up to the middle range of what the, the dollar amount looks like. One more point, and then I'll, then I'll be done. And Jeff pointed this out. He experienced this real time about a well-intentioned leader in city is trying to say, we're running out of place. We have a little bit of money, a little one-time money. Let's throw it at the problem and see if it works. And as the chief, you wouldn't say, nah, I don't want no, no, keep your money. Like I get why we, why we approach that. But the unintended consequence of how the incentive rolled out was a bit stinging. It went to those who are in the mix saying, hey, what about us? Like you're, you're looking for them. You know, what about us and everything Jeff already described? Uri Neasy is, a, is an economist, a behavioral economist who wrote a great book on this for those that are curious about it. It's called Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. Like, and if you, this is a great way and he gives a lot of good examples about how incentives can signal different things in an organization and to be cautious about signaling the wrong message. Let me get, like, I'll give you an example. I don't think this is the case here because of the funding experience. I think I can try to interpret it's coming out of Baltimore. I don't think this is the case here, but here's an example using the $7,500 uh, incentive. We are, we at this organization are offering $7,500 incentive to come work for us. A mixed signal, according to, you know, Yuri's lens on this would say, maybe that person pauses for a minute and says, what is it about that job 
that you have to offer me $7,500 to come work for you uh, that, that I need to be concerned about. Why are you having to offer this money this way? There's a reason why people aren't coming to work there. And I want to be curious about that. And that's an example of how he looks at incentives. Now, I think we all need to look at incentives the way, the way that we go. Takeaway for fire chiefs is it's easy to look at the economic variables in the position description that you have. How many days off do you offer? Which is both actually, I would say, an economical and a psychological benefit versus, you know, a purely financial. So an economist says, how much is the position getting paid? The pay should should matter to someone making a decision. They should want to optimize or maximize their pay. That's an economic lens on this. You take off the economist hat, put on a psychologist hat, and they say, what motivates someone to come to work? What is the purpose that they they feel? What is the support they feel in that organization? And to your point, Samantha, what people are talking about is, what does balance look like? And how do you offer balance? And that's more of a psychological, although arguably a bit economic too, but mostly a psychological condition. Now, if you're trying to attract people to your workforce, I'd be looking at how do you get closer to the psychological variables and values of today's uh, budding workforce, those who are coming into the workforce, what's important to them. Housing's really expensive. Sure, $7,500 bonus will help with that, but there are other housing incentives that I think uh, you know, communities could look at. Cost of education is expensive. How are you working on, on helping that? How are you supporting families? So on and so forth. So I'll leave it a bit. We can unpack all the options of, of what needs to go on. I want to I want organizations to think bigger than we've got a little bit of money. Let's just go ahead and sling it at a bonus and see if it works. The reality is there's no evidence that this has worked in the fire service. All we're doing is even making an effort to rob people from other agencies. And that's what, you know, and I'm not, I'm not mad at Las Vegas uh, for, for doing what they were trying to do with the laterals. You know, Jeff kind of talked about that and you know, people understand the you know, laterals are experienced firefighters from another organization. And that's an effort to steal them. Let's be honest, like that's an effort to steal them from another organization that doesn't help. That doesn't put more people into the into the machine of public service and public safety. It's it's a it's a survival of the fittest strategy to say we are we are hemorrhaging. We are suffering. We can't provide service and we're going to take from somebody else uh, uh, to do that. And, you know, I, I get why there's motivation and quote incentive for an organization to do that for survival. But as an industry fire chiefs, we need to be thinking about how do we grow the pie and not figure out how to fight over splitting the pie. Good points, Bob. And I and I also want to bring into perspective another piece to this approach that I took when I was there and one that I that I hope will encourage other administrators to work into their arsenal. In my opinion, it's a must. And so going back to the original argument or the discussion that we were talking about, there are only so many fixed employees that you have in in most municipal budgets. And in this case, I'm going to use an arbitrary or I'll use the exact number for the city of Las Vegas. There was 174 seats on every shift, 174. And there were 19 what we called rovers. And so in a situation where you're talking about a quote unquote shortage, you are inferring that there aren't enough people to fill seats that are empty. And that has to do with a, a, a couple of different things, a couple of different things. There's a natural retirement rate for people. Uh, and you could call that attrition, people that are retiring out every year, let's just call it 5%. And there are people that, um, you know, 
have other challenges. It could be um, it could be long-term illness. It could be injury, things like that. So what you are up against is a closed container where you can only have so many authorized employees that you can employ and pay. And then you have people that are constantly retiring. And then you have some of those people occupying a financed or funded seat that actually isn't there. They're not working for any number of a couple of reasons. So what you have to do as an administrator is you have to increase your job pool. You have to. It's a mathematical equation where if you don't have enough people to fill the spots, then that's what causes overtime. So I think that part of the strategy while enticing someone to apply is certainly can be a piece of it. I have already explained where I think that was not a, a strategy that worked optimally or one you could say it didn't work at all. However, you want to look at that. I think that the other side to this equation is one must, must go to the person or persons that are creating the budget and you have to increase the FTEs in order to combat the situation. So, because if you because if you don't, you are perpetually going to be chasing your tail, whether you have enough people enticed to apply or not. Because a recruit academy is somewhere between three and six months, and then you have people that are gradually retiring. So you're constantly chasing your tail. You're constantly chasing this gap that can never be completed unless you find a way to increase it. Before we wrap up this week's discussion, Bob, can you leave our fire service leaders with some final advice pertaining to retention and recruitment? As I mentioned in the article, they talked about, you know, hoping that this incentive fixed the problem. Fire chiefs, you got to Let's take a pause and examine and clearly define what is the problem. Jeff just did a great job of explaining these different mathematical computations of, of seats and, and trying to meet response standards and so on and so forth. And that's all part of it. But there are also fundamental assumptions in the fire service that need to be asked and explored. What alternative shift scheduling can you offer? Now, you didn't just hear me say wholesale change the type of shifts. But do you have choice in shift? Some work 48, 24-hour shifts. Some maybe are on 48. You offer 12-hour shifts. Are there 10-hour shifts? Are there alternative assignment in your organization? And are you communicating that broadly with the potential selection pool? Do you offer things that are valuable to a community You know where we have this arguably false assumption of a generation who doesn't believe in community service or volunteering and it's it's completely untrue we have a, a generation that is actually quite committed and dedicated to serving their community but how we think about it is not how they think about it and we're not having that big conversation about where do our values align where does a career in public service and public safety align with the values of those entering the workforce because if the idea is to continue to jam a square peg into a round hole this is why we're hemorrhaging firefighters and this is why we're having recruitment issues because we are not stopping to say what is the problem 
And what does the system or structure of the American fire service look like and how could it look differently? So my message to fire chiefs is zoom out, zoom out on this issue. And, and it isn't about the easy, low hanging fruit things. Like I'm going to offer a little bit more money. That's going to solve our issue. Major supply problem, major demand problem. We need to focus on both sides and have real conversations about what the fire service needs to look like going forward. Yes, I think that is a great ending point. Of course, we are wishing the best of luck to the Baltimore City with this incentive, but maybe this episode was an eye-opener for fire departments struggling with a similar issue. So thank you, Chiefs, for joining us today, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. A link to the article we discussed can be found in our show notes. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. If you have a question for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at WFC and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines.